we're starting a book uh, of Isaiah, and uh, it struck me as I've been thinking about this that we're actually we're delving into a book that kind of enters into a space that we're used to and not used to. You see, we have a concept of a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? You and I all know what that means. It's a fun place that's filled with droids and Wookies and lightsabers and Millennium Falcons. Uh, there's an exciting, wonderful space that is a long time ago and far, far away. But in our culture, apart from those made up long time ago, far, far aways, the real long time ago and far, far aways that occur in our world are places that are full of things that we're taught from a very young age are all wrong. They were people who were more gullible, who had a different kind of morality. They were people with a shorter lifespan, who lived in a different world, a world with no technology, a world with no unity, a world with division, a world with all sorts of things that mean that we have nothing to learn from them. In fact, there are many people, as the current review of Scripture suggests, who feel like reading from the pages of the Old Testament, for example, is like reading from another time and another culture in a way that will actually do damage to and hurt people who live in this world and in this time. And I want to suggest to you that as people who come to read the Bible as Christians in the 21st century, I don't think we're immune from that experience. Uh, I know lots of people who are Christian who feel quite anxious and nervous about delving into the Old Testament because it feels so long ago and so far away and so radically different and we're afraid about what it says. So before we come there today, I wanted to, as we begin, read to you from a little letter sent by the Apostle Paul to Timothy uh, just after Jesus has come, telling him about how he should view the Old Testament. Let me show it to you. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I want to read it to you. Paul says to Timothy, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. At the point in time that Paul wrote to Timothy, the Bible that you and I have, they didn't have. The New Testament was still being written. When Paul wrote to Timothy and said, keep going as a Christian, keep with the sacred writings, keep with your scriptures, the book that he was speaking to Timothy about was the Old Testament. And he says to Timothy, this Old Testament is able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. This Old Testament is actually profitable for reproving and correcting and training and shaping your life so that what? So that you could be able to do every good thing that God has prepared beforehand for you to do. The apostles who taught us about Jesus said that the Old Testament is actually God's book that helps us to be Christian and to understand what God is like and what it means to follow him in this world. And so I want to suggest to you and encourage you that as we read this book from a long time ago that feels so very far away, it may just be the perspective that feels so foreign and odd to us is actually part of a perspective not that we need to leave behind, but that we need to grab hold of if we're genuinely going to serve God in the world. And so I want to actually ask you to pray with me particularly that God would change our perspective to have his eyes on the world as we read Isaiah. So will you please pray with me again? 
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Isaiah and for the fact that it is your precious word to us. Father, we ask, please, that you would grant us the work of your spirit, that as we read it, it would change our perspective, that it would open our hearts and minds to remind us of how you view your world and what it means to be your people. And we pray, Father, that you would use it to make us servants of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, friends, the book of Isaiah actually opens by setting the scene, although it's one of the worst scene settings in all of human history. He takes one verse and he gives it all to you in the, name, in the course of kind of four names. Isaiah 1.1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, for you and I, this is a bit like kind of opening the phone book and reading the first four entries in order to set the scene. It does almost nothing for you at all. Our problem is the problem, again, that we've spoken about already, of distance. If you had been one of Isaiah's original readers, though, these names and these places would have meant much, much more to you. To give you an example of it, if I were to say to you, let me tell you about what happened in France during the time of Churchill and Hitler and Stalin, you already have a bit of a handle on what's going on. I'm talking to you about World War II. I'm talking to you about events and battles that have taken place. Those names set a scene and paint a picture for you that means something. But with Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, it's set about... You know, as much picture as kind of a polar bear in a snowstorm. And you know almost nothing at this point in time. So what I want to do is I want to draw a little map for you that kind of gives you the picture that some of these names give you, okay? So here is your world. And to give you a bit of a feeling, we're kind of the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And there's modern-day Turkey and modern-day Greece up there. But if I roll back to the time that Isaiah is writing in, here is kind of Israel. Israel is actually two parts to Israel. There's a place called Judah down here. And just north of Judah, um, is the northern kingdom which is called Israel. Now the trick is that each of these kingdoms has multiple names that gets used. So Ephraim for example often refers to the northern kingdom and Judah sometimes gets called Israel as well just to make things slightly confusing for you. All right however the big picture at this point in time is that Israel and Judah are living at a moment when there is one of the world's great superpowers on the horizon and the nation of Assyria kind of covers the entire northern eastern part of the world in which they live and just like in our world when someone kind of speaks about the superpowers you know like kind of the US or Russia or China one of those big nations that's right on your border when people start talking about them everyone else gets a little nervous Um, Israel was nervous, but the nation that lived between Israel and Assyria was also nervous, and that nation was called Syria. Now, why they decided to call a country Syria and another one Assyria, I don't know. Clearly, the person who was naming them hadn't thought about high school geography students in kind of the 21st century, but don't get them confused. Syria and Israel, in particular, are aware of the threat on the northern eastern borders. And what they do is they get together and they go along to Judah, who is kind of like Israel's little brother, and they say, Judah, we've got a problem over here. You need to come and join with us and sort the problem out. And they do it in kind of the way that big brothers often do it. You need to come and help me sort the problem out or I'll sort you out. Uh, That's basically what's on the table. Okay. So if you go over into Isaiah 7, you'll read about some kings, a guy called Remaliah and Rezin from those two countries, and a guy called Ahaz, who is the king of Judah. And Ahaz is presented with a problem. He goes, these guys have come and said, come and help us look after Assyria or we're in big trouble. Now, what does Ahaz do? Well, what does the little brother always do when he's threatened by the big brother? 
he goes and speaks to Dad. What happens is that Ahaz sends some blokes off to Assyria to the king of Assyria, a guy called Tiglath-Pileser III, or Tiggy for short, and he says, look, these guys are kind of muscling up on me and I need some help. And what happens is eventually Assyria comes tromping down through Syria and through Israel, and I think some arrows are about to appear all the way, and in fact, tidies up part of Judah as well, just to remind Judah who's actually the boss. Now, all of that takes about kind of 15 to 20 years to take place. There's a whole lot of doing and froing that goes on. And that would be enough to create quite an exciting story, but it's not all that happens because in the next 20 years after that, a new superpower appears on the horizon. So Babylon appears over in the east. Assyria's grown by this stage. Babylon appears over in the east. Egypt is down kind of in the southwest, and Assyria's still a big boy on the block. And Babylon and Egypt together come to Judah and say, hey, dude, if you go up against Assyria, we'll help you out. Um, now, as you can imagine, that creates a certain bunch of angst for them as well. In the end, Babylon gets so big that they kind of come tromping over, they wipe out Assyria and they wipe out Judah and everything gets messy. That kind of 40 or so year period of history is the period of history that's covered by Isaiah. As Isaiah preaches, sometimes he tells you this is about a particular one of those events that was happening, but some of the time he just refers generally, he's speaking after all of these events have taken place, to tell people about what has happened and why it's happened. And the first five chapters of Isaiah in particular don't, after this verse, don't mention any of those specifics. They're just a look that says, Israel, let me give you the big picture of what is happening to you. Well, that makes sense. For those of you who are note takers and don't like pictures, there's a little slide that's about to appear. If you want to take all that down and have some information there, you can just note take away and I'm going to leave that there. I'm going to move on. All right, so the big question is, what does God want to say to these people who are living in the midst of this kind of terror and upheaval and difficulty where their nation is being threatened again and again by the nations around about them? Pick it up with me in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. As Isaiah explains their situation to them, he begins with the picture of an estranged father and a son who is out of relationship with his dad. And he says to to Israel, you who should have been the children of God, in fact you are the children of God, if the whole of the creation belongs to God and should call God Father, then Israel doubly so. For not only do they owe their existence to God, but they owe their existence to an, as a nation to God's rescuing them out of Egypt through the Exodus. Here are the people who in every way should call God Father. But the accusation that Isaiah brings against them is that they're dumber than an ox or a donkey. The ox knows who looks after it. The donkey knows who feeds it. Israel, who should have known the God who looked after and cared for them, have in fact forsaken the Lord. They have walked away. They have ignored God. They have ceased knowing him. Now, what does Isaiah mean by the fact that they have ceased to know the Lord, that they have forsaken him? What does that look like? Well, pick it up with me in verse 10. 
Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Uh, By the way, if you haven't read much of the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah were uh, the epitomes of evil towns in the Old Testament. And God here speaks to his own nation Israel and calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. If you haven't gotten the picture, he's being slightly offensive. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly." Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Isaiah says to this people, you are a people who are going through all the motions of being very godly and religious. You do all of the things, in a sense, that God has asked of you. You bring your blood and your bulls and your goats to the temple and you make sacrifices. You perform the kinds of rituals that God invites you to perform. You come along and you bring things to my courts. You keep all of the holy days, the festivals. You do all of the stuff that from the outside looks incredibly religious, that looks like you're engaging with me as your God. But inside, your hearts are full of things that are very black and ugly. And how does God know that their hearts are black and ugly? It is because although they do these religious rituals, the rest of their lives tell a different story. You get an inkling of it in verse 15. Your hands are full of blood. But he spells it out more as the chapter goes on. Verse 21. The faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. You see, the people who appear in church on a Sunday then take their poor neighbours to court in order to take their land away from them. They are people who take a bribe, who rule for themselves and the sake of their cronies, who do stuff not for the sake of the people that they rule, but to lie in their own pockets. And then, as you come to the end of the chapter, you see the kind of final nail in the coffin, verse 29. They shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. Uh, This image of oaks and gardens is actually an image of worship of other gods. The oaks were the trees of other religions where people would go and perform their religious rituals. So Israel, as well as worshipping God and then living as if God does not exist, goes and worships the gods of the nations around about them. It's kind of like taking a bet each way, right? As long as you worship all the deities, surely one of them is going to be on your side when you get into trouble. They're in trouble. You might as well, you know, put some money on each horse because hopefully one of them's going to win. Now, here's my question. As God speaks to these people, he speaks out of distress and anguish and a broken heart at a people who look religious but have walked away and done evil. What are you and I supposed to do with this message two and a half thousand years after it was written? 
Who are you supposed to identify with? How are you supposed to take these words and apply them to us? What difference does Jesus make? Does Jesus kind of go, well, he's solved all that problem now and so it never happens anymore? What do you do? Do you kind of go, there's another world and it's kind of interesting and I can read it and pray a couple of prayers and move on? Or how am I supposed to listen? Well, one of the things that I want to suggest to you is that the Old Testament is used in many ways in the New Testament. As it points us to Jesus, it points to him by telling us about him, about the promises that God has made about him, but also being a reminder of the nature of humanity and our response to him. And the New Testament actually often picks up the Old Testament as a warning in particular for his people. I want to show you just a couple of examples of the way the New Testament does it. 1 Corinthians 10 is going to appear on the screen behind me. I want you to hear how Paul applies the events of God's judgment on Israel to people in New Testament times. He says, These things took place to Israel in the Old Testament as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, it's not just here. Hebrews 3 and 4 does exactly the same thing. Old Testament Israel had the promises of God and the word of God and relationship with God, but they would not trust God And he warns them, do not be like them. So friends, at one very real level, the first thing we need to learn here is actually how ugly hypocrisy is. To appear religious, to make all the motions for the people around about you and even to pretend in your relationship with God when you turn up in the place where God's people are, that you love him and trust him, you sing the songs, you do the things. I don't know, maybe you even turn up as a leader of Sunday school or you perform in the band to help people to worship God or you're someone who leads at youth group. Do you turn up and go through the motions while the rest of your life is actually full of things that actually deny the character and the nature of the God that you claim to worship so clearly. You see, these people had God's promises. They lived in God's land. They even did the religious rituals that would have said that they knew him. And yet God sees their hearts and he's going to bring judgment on their hearts. So as you read this, will you at the very least ask yourself the question, where is my heart in relation to what I proclaim to profess about God and about Jesus? Does my life actually deny what I say that I believe? Because, friends, as you dig into this chapter, will you notice with me some of the other realities about what it means to be a hypocrite? The next warning that I want to point out to you is that hypocrites can actually have hearts that have become so dulled 
that they can't even see their folly any longer. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Now, I don't know about you, but I get to lodge in a cucumber field and I feel like kind of chuckling a little bit, right? There's this really serious thing and then there's this kind of lodge in a cucumber field and you're kind of going, what's going on here? Well, I've done the homework and here's the best that I can do in terms of a picture of a lodge in a cucumber field, right? What it is, is a little makeshift hut in the middle of a broad open space with almost nothing else where you go and you try and get some shelter from the sun in order to eat your lunch. A hut in a cucumber field is a small, shaky building with nothing else around about it. So we, we read the image and we kind of chuckle at it. But Isaiah's point is to the city of Jerusalem, you have become like a lodge in the middle of a cucumber field. You have watched the entirety of your nation get destroyed until all you have left is this little hut. And then he picks up that image and he says, you are sick. You're living in a place where your nation has been destroyed. And not only has it been destroyed, but I have been speaking to you and telling you why it's happening. It's because of your rebellion against me. And then he asks the question, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? You see, Israel, in her folly, can be experiencing the very results of her rejection of God as God says to her, I am rejecting her. And her heart can be so dull that she will not listen and she will continue to refuse to repent. You see, friends, hypocrisy isn't just something that you can take or leave and it comes to you and it goes. Hypocrisy dulls your heart. The more you say it doesn't matter and you find excuses to ignore sin and you walk away and you pretend that God doesn't care or he doesn't see or he doesn't know or it doesn't really bother him, what you actually do is you dull your heart to hearing the word of God. You dull your heart and when God says, you have a problem and you have an issue, you get to the point where you go, no, I don't. I'm okay. And friends, the very great tragedy of that is what God says will ultimately befall the hypocrite. Isaiah 22. Sorry, 122. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. God is going to clean up his people. He is going to make her presentable and good and righteous. And you know how he's going to do it? He's going to do it by sweeping away the evil. He's going to do it by smelting. Now, I don't know whether you've had any 
smelting experience. I'm hoping that the engineers in the room have had smelting experience. Any engineers had smelting experience? You see, you don't actually do smelting, do you? You learn about it in a room somewhere and they show you a video of smelting. Smelting is about actually getting stuff that you can use. You know, things like iron and nice metals that you can use, they don't occur in the ground in that form. They occur as kind of rocky, ready stuff. And what they do is they dig it out of the ground and then they whack it in these massive furnaces where they add some extra chemicals and whatever. And as it burns away, all the rubbish rises to the top, burns off and gets swept away so that all you have left is what is pure and good and usable. And God's promise to Jerusalem is that he's going to cleanse her by smelting her. He is going to put her in the furnace. He's going to burn away all that is evil and wrong and real till he's left with what is pure. Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Now, friends, the thing that I want to say to you most clearly about this is that this is a word that everybody pretends doesn't apply once you get to the New Testament. Even the broader Christian world of which you're a part, there are hundreds and thousands of people who want to say, that's what the Old Testament says, but Jesus comes and he brings the love of God. Well, he does come to display the love of God, but he displays the love of God to a world who also stands under God's judgment. And so I want you to hear Jesus, that really nice guy in the New Testament. He uses the same kind of language to describe God's anger at sin. Matthew 13. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is not just a picture that described Israel and the way that Assyria came against her in 722 BC. That is actually a small picture of the way that God will treat the world in rebellion against him when he comes again at the end of the age. And it's not just Jesus. The idea gets repeated through the New Testament. Hebrews 12, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The Bible says that God hates sin. That sin is actually so deep and ugly and abhorrent to the person of God that there is going to come a day when God is actually going to remove sin from the world and he's going to remove it by actually judging people. Real, live people. He's not just going to remove the sin, he's actually going to remove the sinner. And that is the situation that all of us stand in in our natural state before God. That is where the world is heading. It's not heading to a wondrous utopia where our collective genius has created technology that will make the world a superhuman place to live in. That's not where it's heading. It's heading towards a day when every person will give an answer to God for the way that they've actually lived their life. 
And so the question that you've got to ask is, well, what does it mean then to be right with this God? How does one stand right with this God? And I want to show you that Isaiah was already speaking to people about how they would be right with him. Pick it up with me in verse 18. God says to Israel, even in the midst of her hypocrisy and sin and foolishness, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you notice that even here, God says, you're presented with a choice. Will you turn and come to me, or will you continue to live in rebellion against me? Because I am willing, in spite of all that you have done, to treat the redness of your sins and to make them as white as snow. Now, do you see that these people, they aren't the ones that fix themselves up. They don't clean themselves up. God says, I am willing to treat you in such a way that I will cleanse your sin and make you white as snow. I am willing to treat you as people who, though you are scarlet, you will be white like wool. Now, friends, God will do that at the cost of his own son. And I don't know whether you reflected on that much recently, but I, you think about what that means. God is willing to treat people who are in sinful rebellion against him as his own children by setting the judgment that belongs to us upon Jesus. When Jesus stood before Pilate and testified to the truth, And when Jesus was scourged with whips and had the crown placed on his head and walked to Calvary and was nailed to the cross, the scarlet of that place was not the scarlet of his sin. It was actually the scarlet of our sin being set upon him so that we could be forgiven, so that God could say to you, come and reason with me. I will take your sins and I will treat them as white as snow. Do you notice the other image that Isaiah used in verse 27? Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Zion shall be redeemed. There will be a price that is paid. Justice will be done in order to make those who are wrong right. God actually does justice in Jesus. Jesus stands in the furnace in our place. Jesus is the one in whom God burns off the sin and the dross of our lives that we might be considered pure and right and holy before the living God. But friends, will you notice that as God presents this picture before Israel, what does he call on them to do? Verse 19 If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Verse 27, it is those who repent who are redeemed by righteousness. Now, friends, this is such a difficult concept that we always get confused and mixed up with it. We're terrified because of our heritage, of being worried that our works and people think of their works as making them right with God. And so we keep declaring the absolute grace of God in his, in his judgment of sin and dealing with it in Christ and his absolute forgiveness of us in him. And that is completely right. 
But our problem is that we reduce these works and the repentance of turning away from our sinful life and back to God to a nothing. You don't need to do anything. God's grace just sorts you out. No, God is gracious towards those who repent by the work of his spirit and by his kindness. Repentance never earns you anything with God. You don't, because you suddenly did the right thing, wipe out all the wrong stuff that you did. It doesn't fix it up. But you can't come to God and cry out and say, please forgive me, I'd just like to keep living my old life that was in rebellion against you. Thank you very much. It doesn't work like that. That's just stupid. Because it's sin that's bringing the judgment of God in the first place. So I'm about to try what I think is a very dangerous illustration. And uh, we'll see whether this works or not, because it's very current and very real and potentially misunderstood. A couple of weeks ago now, our nation watched on in horror as Andrew Chan and Myron Sukumaran went to their deaths before the firing squads in Indonesia. Why did they go to their deaths? Well, the answer is they actually went into a country knowing the rules of that country, doing something that they knew was wrong, doing something where they knew the penalty for what they were doing was wrong, and they did it anyway. Now, let me ask you the question, did any of their subsequent actions in prison make up for the wrong that they did? You see, when they were put to death... Our country cried out and they said, the death penalty is terrible. We hate the death penalty. Now, friends, there's a rightness about that. But there's also a profound misunderstanding. If they had done something like, say, raped a couple of women and then stood up in court and claimed no remorse whatsoever, do you think our country would have been half as outraged if they had gone and received the death penalty? I would say to you there would have been a couple of whimpers in a couple of papers and people on the whole would have said they probably received what they deserved. Now our country and actually our world thinks because they repented they earned the right to be forgiven. I want to say to you they did not earn the right to be forgiven. They just didn't. The good that you do doesn't make up for the bad that you do. If you kill someone, saving someone else's life doesn't make up for the fact that you killed someone. However, I'll tell you the other thing that our world doesn't understand. The President of Indonesia does not understand that it is to your glory to overlook an offence. Why do people tie forgiveness to repentance? It's actually because that's the way that the God of the universe works. He pays the price to forgive people. And when people turn back to him, it's not like you earn it or you suddenly get into his good books or make yourself perfect. What you do is you turn around and you throw yourself at his feet and you say, please forgive me because I can't fix it up. And the gracious goodness of God is that he doesn't demand that justice is done. He deals with justice in his son so that the guilty walk free and forgiven. Friends, I want to encourage you as you read Isaiah in the coming weeks to realise that the picture of who God is here is a picture of wondrous grace that goes together with pure justice 
in such a way that he is holier than you can imagine and more good than we can possibly know. And I want you to be driven by that to actually respond where Israel didn't respond. And so I'm going to ask you to stop and think about your own life for a minute. Do you turn up to church on Sunday to sing the songs, to cry out, to lead people in prayer, to lead Sunday school, to go through all the motions while you're actually blatantly ignoring and trying very hard not to do anything about the sin that infects the rest of your life? Because God said to these people, They could do all the religious stuff in the world and they could still be out of relationship with God. Friends, if you are in a space where you need to deal with something in your life, where you need to bring it to God and bring it to other people, will you know that God's grace is perfect, that his forgiveness is complete, and that he gives it to you, that he might restore you and make you whole, and bring you to new life in Christ. If you have something that you need to deal with, pray about it, find someone to talk about it, and actually take steps to deal with it. Don't continue to brush away your hypocrisy. I'm going to pray. Now, Father in heaven, we thank you that in your incredible mercy you're willing to treat our scarlet sin as white as snow for no reason from us. Father, we thank you that you are God and King and that you are too pure to look on sin and that you will one day cleanse and purify our worlds by taking sin away. Father, will you please teach us through all of these things not to be like Israel. Father, where there is sin in our life, will you show it to us? Will you teach us to repent and deal with it? Will you please forgive us in Christ because we cannot be forgiven by our own merit. Father, thank you for being our God and King in Christ. Amen.